Thanks for taking the time to check out this episode of Desert Island Goals. Video links to all the goals we're going to discuss in this podcast are in the description below, as well as social media profiles for myself, the podcast itself, and our guest. Please take the time to follow us all right now. There is a good chance there will be some strong language at some point during this podcast, just letting you know that ahead of time. And please take the time right now to give us a five-star review on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Okay. Hello. Welcome once again to Desert Island Goals. I'm your host, Callum Squires. This is the podcast where each week our very esteemed guest takes us through their list of five goals they would rewatch or relive if they were cast away on a desert island and could only choose those five goals for the rest of their life. Thank you very much for taking the time to check us out. Joining me today is a very special guest, someone I'm very excited to talk to, Rob Matsura. Rob, thank you first and foremost for taking the time to put your Desert Island Goals list together and joining us. I can see from from our video call right now that it looks like a nice sunny day in New York City where you are. How, how are you doing today? Yeah, doing great. And, you know, uh, highly esteemed and very special are, uh, you know, superlatives I'll, I'll take on the chin for now. But, uh, yeah, gorgeous day here in New York City. Uh, had the Men and Blazers guys uh, not too long ago uh, taking some pictures for their new apparel line uh, down by Brookfield Place, not too far away from me. So feeling the, uh, feeling the footballing spirit right now. Well, good. I'm glad it's uh, it's it's a good day to be talking football. Then for sure, those those are two very funny guys, the Men and Blazers. Um, Rob, we always start by introducing you to our audience, who some of whom will know you. Obviously, our, our American friends, Rob and I, met at Trinity University as soccer players there. But not everyone here will will know you. So first and foremost, where are you from originally, and what are your earliest football memories in terms of you becoming a a football fan? Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's been a it's been quite a journey from day one for me. But, you know, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, San Diego and, um, you know, that's quite the footballing hub of the United States of America, especially at kind of the what I'll consider early days of the popularity of the sport and uh, growing, growing the game in the U.S. Um, but, yeah, I really I really started when I was around seven or eight years old. And, you know, I was a really and still am, but I was a really unathletic young kid who really didn't know much about the game whatsoever. Um, but just looking to, you know, find a sport that I could participate in and really, you know, get out there and meet new people. And my parents uh, took me around to numerous, numerous tryouts with various, various clubs. And uh, it took uh, it took a while after uh, multiple rejections as a as a young lad to finally find a club. Um, which happened to be an offshoot of a Manchester United uh, player at the time who came to the States to start coaching. So, um, yeah, he had uh, he had started a club. It was uh, Carmel Valley Manchester, um, you know, with the, the crest and all and everything. Um, but it was the only club that took me because they were a new club and they really just needed players. Um, but, you know, from day one, just hearing, hey, we'd like you to come play with us and, you know, don't worry about anything. We can we can coach you up and teach you everything was, you know, all I really needed to to get going on my football career. Um, so my coach's name was actually uh, Billy Garton, and he was a Manchester United player for a while back in uh, the 80s. He had about 50, uh, 50, 50 appearances for the senior club before um, kind of being riddled with injuries and having to be forced into early retirement by some illness. But 
he decided to take a chance on me and you know he was an he was a defender at the time which is the position that I initially started in and ended up um kind of making a quote-unquote career out of but yeah I mean if it if it wasn't for his coaching and for his uh his advice and expertise you know I wouldn't be here with you today I wouldn't have met you and have started this entire journey that's really shaped my life it's 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 an incredible story. I didn't I didn't know half of that. I didn't know that you had such a uh, useful link to Manchester United through through the coaching there that you had uh, out west in California. And so obviously, I guess that kind of gives it away that Rob here is a Manchester United fan. Was it as simple as the the club you played for being linked to United that drew you in, or were there other reasons why Manchester United became the club that you most vociferously cheer for? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly the introductory um, kind of period that I needed but you know part of the advice that he was giving me was you know hey you have to watch this game if you want to learn how to improve and really see at at the high level and you know at the time it's funny looking back on it but those games were not easy to come by in the United States and uh you know luckily I had very supportive parents who decided to buy the additional TV packages and whatnot but man I remember those early days of watching uh the Premier League on like Fox Soccer or whatever it was and pre-high definition TV and Man, it was it was like watching old school like two K graphics. Everything was blocky and on a delay, and would uh, shift in and out at times. But you know, it was just uh, it was it was watching them growing up that really you know solidified the fandom for me. And as I watched them and I learned and I digested, I you know subsequently learned about the history of the club as well. I mean, we are the most successful you know English club in in history, and you know the the biggest club in the world. I mean, people will call me, you know, a fair weather Manchester United fan if uh, if they wouldn't know any better. But you know, my my link to the club from from day one really is is more than just knowing that they were a successful club that uh, had a padded trophy cabinet. But you know, some a club that I really grew up with from day one that you know, for better or for worse, has stuck with me through through today and you know, experienced a lot of ups and downs as you know as well. I mean, you you've been a fan since forever as well but there's been periods of joy and periods of pain but that's you know part of the beautiful game as well and it's that roller coaster of emotions and you know periods of struggle and hard work that really just drew me into the game and you know it's it's shaped everything about me today the good times that i guess we both had as kind of uh young teenagers i guess i don't know that we necessarily realized how fleeting they could be and certainly since i came to america in 2013 uh, I didn't imagine that nine years would go by without seeing United win a Premier League. And it looks like that will definitely be 10 this year. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it does kind of really kind of put things in perspective that these successes don't last forever. And so, yeah, being accused of being a fair-weather fan would be a, a patently ridiculous thing for yourself and, and many other United fans around the world. Obviously, you said it was very difficult at first to watch the games on American TV and you had to have special cable packages and so on and so forth. And the growth of soccer in the US has been huge in the last couple of decades, obviously from when MLS started in the nineties and to where it is today with, you know, I was getting friends in the UK texting me about the MLS cup final that just happened this past weekend. This was a crazy game in and of itself. And that that's a testament to how the game has grown. And as Rob sits here, he and I on a video call recording this, you're obviously wearing the USA men's national team jersey, um, which is, I know, another thing that's uh, dear to you, these US national teams. So how have you seen 
the U.S. national team's kind of growth in the in the last couple of decades. Obviously, on the women's side, which we're going to touch on later on, they've perennially been hugely successful. But on the men's side, not so much. And it's taken some time for them to get to a stage where heading into the Qatar World Cup here this November, and we're going to get onto that later on, there does feel to be some semblance of positivity around the young youth talent in America. So what do the national teams mean to you? And... Do, do they mean as much as your club fandom? Do they mean more? How do you how do you kind of weigh those things up? Where we are today is an extremely exciting period for, you know, specifically U.S. men's national team um, and the growth that we've experienced. But, but, you know, before I go into that, you know, it's it's really important to note that our, our women's team is absolutely dominant. And it's it's frustrating in a sense to to sit here and look back and think that, the nation as a whole has not, you know, been as invested in them as much as in the men's game, especially now that, you know, the, the United States population is buying into the program and buying into the game and realizing, you know, what it really means to, you know, be a world cup contender, let alone win a world cup. And we have a women's team that's been, you know, extremely successful with four World Cup titles, four Olympic gold medals, nine CONCACAF gold cups, and they've just been kind of slept on. So to say that soccer in the U.S. is emerging is a little bit of a a disservice to the women's game, in my opinion, because we've been here and we have winning teams and winning mentalities, but it's just, it's disconnected a little bit and it's it's sad. But, you know, my my love for the the national team really did begin with the women's team, just understanding that we do have, you know, winners in our, in our nation. And it, it's taken a little bit for the men to, to catch up, but you know, it, it really started with that. And um, just that, that sense of pride that you get from watching either of your, your women's teams or your men's teams is just, it, it, it's different from, you know, when you're watching your club team. I mean, I absolutely love United to death, but you know, these are our players that we've developed. These are our players wearing our badge, you know. These are our fans with, you know, our own chance and fandom and support going after it. So it, you you feel really there's an inclu- inclusivity about it that, you know, those of us who have been here from, you know, the early days are, you know, happy to bring more people into. And I think a lot of people are seeing that it's a, it's a good space to be in. Yeah, it's 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 an incredible feeling seeing success now on on both men's and women's teams. But what I think is really cool and what is helping grow the sport in general is that you know other sports are really buying into the program as well. I mean, if you go on social media today, you have basketball players, uh, you know, posting about the game. They're hitting the Ronaldo Sue celebration here and there, especially in the NFL in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's a recognition from other top athletes and other top leagues in the United States that's, I think, really helping to drive the conversation and drive the 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 buy-in for you know the larger the larger part of the population that has been there. And honestly, as well, you know, credit to the video game FIFA. I mean, FIFA has been an incredible way for people to learn about the sport, learn about players, learn about teams, learn about formations, even stuff like how the transfer market works if you're, you know, playing, you know, foot team and ultimate team and whatnot. But there's, there's been just so many more avenues from the days where, you know, I had to watch on pixelated delays to, 
you know, it's it's pop culture to a degree in the United States now, and it's refreshing to see. And there's a growing sense of optimism around, you know, the teams that we have now and with the talent that we have now. So it's only going to go up from here. I think we're almost at like an inflection point where football will really become something, you know, quote unquote, cool in America to follow and support. And, you know, given the kind of American uh, characteristic of elitism or wanting to be the best at stuff like that, that infectious uh, arrogance for better or for worse will continue to bleed in to the game itself. So, you know, I hope to continue to see that growth there and, you know, hope everybody continues to buy in because we have, we have some exciting stuff on the, on the cards for us now. You make a number of excellent points and, and certainly it is worth mentioning, but genuinely the, the FIFA impact cannot be understated because in terms of learning the game for youth in America, I think that's something that, you know, I would meet people when I first got to college who may not necessarily have an interest in soccer, and they'd be like, no, no, but I play FIFA. I love FIFA. And I, I don't necessarily know how that starts rather than the game itself first, but FIFA has made a huge impact in pop culture, as you said. And I, I, your point about the elitism is something that I, I do love because I always tell people, you know, if, if, when, if Americans are not good at something, they throw money at it until they are good at it. And then once they are good at it, they throw money at it to stay good at it. So I, I remain convinced that within our lifetime, I really do think we will see a U.S. team win the World Cup. I don't think it will necessarily be this year, but I do think that it will happen in our lifetime just because with the pool of talent and the size of the country, I, I think it's it, it's going to almost be impossible for the U.S. to fail if they continue to put money into it and, and grow as they have done. But equally, as you very fairly pointed out, we've seen the U.S. Women's World Cup team, uh, U.S. Women's National Team, excuse me, win the World Cup multiple times, and I'm sure that will happen probably twice more this decade before before all said and done. Considering, uh, uh, you know, England might give them a run for the money now that now that we've got our, our stuff together, thankfully. Obviously, the reason we're here is to talk through your Desert Island goals. So, in terms of putting this list together. Was this an easy process for you? Was this difficult? Were there particular criteria that your goals had to fit into? And how did you did you enjoy this process? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. It's a it's a good trip down memory lane. But uh, I guess the the thought process for me was just to sit down and you know think of all the goals that immediately came to mind in my head. Um, and obviously, we went back and forth because you know I wanted to have a relatively unique list, uh, and a couple of those were uh, were taken. Uh, which is great because they're incredible goals. But um, but I, I really wanted to identify goals that I had, you know, either I specifically remember having an emotional reaction to goals that I was just absolutely wowed by. Um, and yeah, goals that just kind of meant something for better, for, for lack of a better term. Um, I mean, we're going to get into well, the hat trick of Rooney's, but, uh, you know, a lot of those came to mind because he was just the, he's a player I literally grew up with. Uh, he was, you know, my striker. And we, he's, he's a guy who we watched mature in front of our eyes from, you know, being a $26 million transfer fee from Everton at his 18 or 19 or whatever it was to becoming United's top goal scorer, England's top goal scorer, or one of England's top goal scorers. It's hard for me to think of, a lot of other sports that have an array of players across the board outside of maybe even just the superstars themselves that people have really grown up with or have a real emotional attachment to. 
And it's 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 reasons like that that these goals are on the list for me for for one reason or another. Ramage's header falls to Rooney. What a special strike! is terrific okay goal number one for rob and as he kind of alluded to in the intro these next few goals are going to have a common thread through them and that is former manchester united great wayne rooney who himself had a fantastic career at old trafford having started at everton and a player who reinvented himself a number of times through his career. And we'll actually see that a little bit as we go through this list, through these three Rooney entries onto it. We're going to start, however, in 2005, when a very young Wayne Rooney scores what I would argue is probably the first huge goal of his Manchester United career in terms of people taking a look and just going, wow, this kid is something special. Obviously, Rooney joined Manchester United uh, following Euro 2004, and this is about nine months after that in April of 2005. He scores a hat-trick on his debut against Fenerbahce in the Champions League and had played you know, numerous great moments through that season. Uh, he scored against Arsenal to end their unbeaten run the day before his 19th birthday. But this goal against Newcastle is one that I think really made people sit up and take notice because of its sheer kind of impudence and power and the unstoppable nature of the the force of nature that was Wayne Rooney at the time. So this is Manchester United 2, Newcastle 1 from 2005. And this goal is actually an equaliser. And it's often forgotten that this is not a goal that wins the game, which kind of uh, puts a very interesting spin on it in and of itself. Uh, Darren Ambrose had given Newcastle the lead after 27 minutes and United found themselves 1-0 down until the 57th minute when Wayne Rooney decides to do something about that. And the goal itself is a remarkable display of power, precision, and you know ingenuity and ability to improvise because the ball is played forward kind of aimlessly from one of the centre-backs. I believe it's Gabriel Ainsa. It's headed away by Newcastle's right-back, who I think was Stephen Carr at the time. I have to, yeah, Stephen Carr heads it away and Rooney steps onto it fully 25, 30 yards out and without even thinking, hammers a volley into the top left-hand corner past Shea Given, who was a very good goalkeeper for Newcastle for a while, but is absolutely helpless with this one. And to be frank, Rob, I remember at the time just kind of not really believing that he'd had the audacity to try this first time on the volley you know, as a team that was losing. But at the same time, the execution is just so incredible. It's so Wayne Rooney. And really, it it tells you a lot about him as a player. But, Rob, what are your recollections of this? Was this a game you were able to be watching? I guess, you know, at these times, like you said, these games were hard, or is this a game that you watched uh, later on? And and what are your kind of recollections of, of this Wayne Rooney goal itself? Yeah, frankly... I don't remember where I was or what I was doing, but this was a goal that I would have had access to at the time. Um, but, you know, this made my list because this is this is peak 
teenage youth full of rage Wayne Rooney here, you know, and he was just an absolute beast that needed taming. And Sir Alex Ferguson ended up getting the best out of him with that. But this goal from, from start to finish is just, it it oozes just a a spiteful, angry, youthful Rooney. And, you know, I think a lot of us can connect to that at that level um, at that age where it's just like, you want to, you want to be a world beater. And he felt aggrieved for something and just out of a, a fit of rage and just a swing of the boot absolutely connects and hits a thunder bastard past Shay Given, who is one of the absolute, you know, I would say, I would consider Shay Given one of the, you know, greatest, you know, one of the greats of uh, Premier League goalkeepers, um, especially at the time. He was, he was pretty unbeatable for a while there. But, you know, I think one of my favorite parts about this is that prior, there, there were two things prior to the goal that were happening in, it, like, simultaneously. One, a, you know, Cleverson was warming up on the sideline. Rooney had a feeling that it was going to be him getting pulled. I'm sure he's not happy about that. He sees it happening. He sees him warming up and, A, thinks I need to do something about it and, you know, goes ahead and do something about it. But the second thing is the man is arguing with the referee literally two seconds before, you know, he, he hits this thing. And in in the video replays and, you know, even live, you could see him like he is barking at the referee. They are having a full on conversation. And at some point he just kind of says, you know, fuck off, basically turns around, (laughs) takes like four steps, sees the ball come out of the air. I don't even know how he decided to like be like, you know, I'm just going to hit this. But absolutely, you know, takes the takes the leather off the ball and flies and screams past Shea Given. But it's it's really just that that sequence of events is, is brilliant and what made him such a, such a good competitor over the years. And, you know, we can see over the years and we'll get into it with these other goals too, that he, he kind of, he matures a lot and you don't get to be a legend of Manchester United and our top goal scorer without a, you know, sense of maturity at the end of the day. But it is that fire within him that really started his career that caught his attention, but it's a fire. I don't think he really lost. And to your point, his game changed so much, um, you know, over the years and, you know, changed positionally in the role on the team. But regardless of what he was doing or what position he was in, it was always that drive and that hunger and that fire to win. Even, you know, I'll, I'll pivot a little bit to, you know, when he was at DC United and he had that ridiculous, like, 50-yard track back, last-minute open goal, like, slide tackle picks up the ball, pings a 60-yarder to the back post for DC United to walk away with a, like a tying goal or whatever it was. And that that dude was doing that at like 36. And that was almost, you know, that same feeling or that same that same reaction as a viewer to seeing him do that at 36 as the school at 19. I mean, the man is just an absolute legend and one of the best competitors in, across all sports, in my opinion. I think you you touched on the two things with this goal that I'd noted down that we had to talk about, which was A, yes, he was allegedly supposed to be being replaced, and B, that he is screaming at the referee five seconds before the goal. And that is, you know, archetypal, quintessential Wayne Rooney. There were so many people who would talk about, you know, oh, his his temper will cost you. And at times it did. You know, I remember red cards he got. I remember he got a red card against Fulham for throwing the ball away, which nearly derailed our title race in 2009. And, you know, he had ups and downs and we'll we'll get to them a little bit more with the next goal in terms of his relationship with Manchester United and the fans. But the genius of the boy could not be 
could not be disputed. And I, I love that you've mentioned that uh, the way the, the DC United goal because I think you know I haven't st- I haven't really settled on my uh, my five Des Island goals yet for when I do my special episode. But that one would probably be an honourable mention because it it shows you everything you need to know about Wayne Rooney in twenty seconds. And his team effectively goes from potentially losing to definitely winning in the space of 15 seconds. And it is entirely because of what Wayne Rooney gives you. And th- and this goal really exemplifies that as well. I mean, we should say, like I said, this is the equalizer. And United go on to win the game 2-1 through a Wes Brown goal with 15 minutes left. And this this season itself in 2004-05 was, was not a vintage Manchester United team. This was the start of the eventual double winning team of 07-08. This was... Van Nistelrooy was about to be phased out. Rooney was being phased in. Ronaldo was being phased in. Roy Keane, I think, left during this season. You know, this was a transitional period as teams in, uh, or I guess as franchises in the US like to say, a rebuilding year. And United were not able to compete with Jose Mourinho's Chelsea, who were new on the scene and were still a little bit behind Arsenal as well in this season. But you could really see the hope of what Wayne Rooney was going to bring to this team and how he was going to be able to inspire United moving forward. And I I think it's really goals like this just inspire everyone around you, right? Like he was always someone who inspired his teammates, I feel. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those goals you you watch and then you're hitting volleys in the backyard with your friends that are you're you're gonna go collect from your neighbor's yard for the next like week because you're just trying to hit absolute screamers. I mean and and just the impact that that does have on your team, you know, just to have an absolutely raw emotion and to be able to, you know, really translate that into, in this case, a, a tangible goal and a tangible benefit to the team. But, you know, I, I don't care if you're, you're Roy Keane and you're not stone man and like leader of the leader of the barbarians or whatever, you're even going to get an emotional reaction if you see that happen, because that's going to fire you up. And, you know, Rudy has time and time again for United. And then, you know, even at Everton when he returned and DC United, he's had that impact of just being an infectious player and a, an absolute guy you love to have in your team, guy you hate to play against. Um, but you, there's, you know, there's, there's few, there's few players that come to mind that as far as just raw emotional output from times really even comes close to him. Nani. Rooney! Oh, wonderful! What a goal! And what a time! In what a place! What a player! Wayne Rooney out of this world! 2-1 United! One of the great goals in the history of the Manchester Derby. Okay, goal number two for Rob. And surprise, surprise, we are back at Old Trafford. And we're talking about Wayne Rooney again. There will be other goals throughout this list, I promise, scored by other people. But Rob's list, Rob's rules. And this one is, I think, Wayne Rooney's best ever goal and probably his most famous ever goal. We are at Old Trafford, February of 2011, and it is the Manchester Derby. And Wayne Rooney had a very good record in Manchester derbies. used to love playing against City, scored against them a number of times, but never in more emphatic or impressive than this particular goal. 
This game was was big at the time for the Premier League title race. Uh, United came into the day five points ahead of City at the top of the league, but with Arsenal, who'd beaten Wolves earlier in the day, breathing down their necks. And City obviously still in it with just a five-point gap between the two teams. United would take the lead through Luis Nani just before half-time, I think 41 minutes on the clock. But a slightly weird equaliser for Manchester City where Edin Dzeko's shot hits David Silva on the back and flies past Edwin van der Sar, equalised for City with 25 minutes to go. And at that stage, kind of looked like the game was going to peter towards a uh, a 1-1 draw. However, in the 78th minute, a ball from Paul Scholes finds Nani again on the right wing. Nani swings the ball into the box. It gets a flick off a defender's head. And Wayne Rooney decides that he is going to leap in the air and hit the most incredible bicycle kick I think we've ever seen in Premier League history. It's absolutely incredible. Straight into the top corner past Joe Hart. The the thing I love the most about this goal, to be completely honest, is the reaction of the United bench. Ferguson mouthing, oh, fucking hell. Anderson celebrating like crazy. And just the sheer outpouring of disbelief, I think it's fair to say, that you've actually seen that goal at this stage of a title race, of a game, of a derby game, scored so cleanly, so unstoppably. It it was, again, pure Wayne Rooney genius. I've got a story about this goal that I'm going to tell a little bit later on, but Rob, take me back to 2011. Were you watching this live, and what are your recollections of, of this Wayne Rooney goal against City? Yeah, uh, 2011, I am king of the world as a senior in high school. Uh, really cool guy that everybody loved. But yeah, no, I remember being at home and watching this. And, you know, this is when, this, is, this was the beginning of, you know, City starting to get a little bit of a foothold. And, you know, us being United fans at the time, we're saying, oh, whatever, they're never going to catch up. And they're, you know, only a, it's a blip in the radar sort of stuff. But, you know, this this was a team that came to compete and, you know, the likes of Vincent Company, Ed Ndeko, David Silva, you could even throw Micah Richards in there just because, you know, he's one of the all-time GOAT broadcasters now. You know, this this was a team that was not going to, you know, this they were becoming the noisy neighbors, basically. Um, so this was a game where I remember it being 1-1 and when Rudy just absolutely pulled this out of the bag, it was almost like part of... On, Part of me was like, wow, what a goal. Part of me was like, should I be celebrating this this hard? Because like that's giving credit to City a little bit. But no, I mean, this is six years on from the the Rudy Volley against Newcastle, 30th anniversary of the Prem. Um, and this season was United goes on to win their 12th. Um, but yeah, this was a massive goal because it kept us, you know, in the title race at the time. It kept us leading at the time. An absolute moment of you would never expect an individual to to even attempt that at that point in time. I mean, the man is sandwiched right between Vincent Company and Micah Richards, somehow gets a floating ball that, you know, deflected off of the cross and decides, you know what, like, let's just go for it and absolutely just buries it in the corner. It was one of the most incredible goals that I can remember watching live. Like, I have actual memories of watching it live, and I pretty much popped up out of my couch and sprinted down my hallway yelling at the top of my lungs. And, you know, my dog started barking at us because I'm just like losing my absolute mind. Yeah. And and it's a fascinating period in Wayne Rooney history because 
earlier this season, there had been suggestions that Wayne Rooney wanted to leave. Wanted to leave Manchester United and potentially go to Manchester City because in his mind there was a bit of a turning of the tide. I think the the allegation was made that Wayne Rooney was not particularly impressed by just adding Chicharito, Javier Hernandez, in the uh, summer of 2010, despite how wonderful of a player he was for United for a few years, one of my all-time favourites, though potentially maybe not one of Rob's with the uh, USA-Mexico rivalry we'll talk about a little bit later on. But Rooney had had a very up-and-down season. He hadn't had a good game at all. Um, Things were bouncing off him. Nothing was going right for him. And yet, to have the sense of occasion and ability to be able to pull this piece of skill off at this moment, when it really matters, like you said, to probably lead United to the title, it it just speaks volumes about the kind of player he was and, and the talent he was. He's simply incredible. Um, I, I love the fact that this is on your list because I've wanted to talk about this goal for a while. The reason I can't talk about this goal and won't really put it on my Desert Island goals list, even though it should be, is that I was on a train to Germany while this goal happened and couldn't watch it live. And a friend of mine who's a Chelsea fan just texted me and said, Rooney scored. I'm glad you didn't see it. And that's all I got. That's all I got. So I, I assumed that it was a good goal. Um, but I hadn't seen it live until a number of hours later by the time I got to my German host family's house um, and couldn't believe that I hadn't seen it live, but just an incredible goal. And I'd like to ask you just briefly about the City kind of arrival in the Premier League because I certainly have encountered significantly more Manchester City fans in America than I ever have in the UK, though that's partially due to region regionally where I'm based and where I live. What is it about the Man City rise that you think has has led them to being able to market themselves well in America? Is it as simple as the the City Football Group partnership they have with New York City FC? And is that something that you feel in New York? Do you feel like you see Manchester City fans around the place quite often? I mean, yeah, they've been they've been popping out of the woodwork since you know Sheikh Mansour <laughs> took over in what twenty ten, but. Um... Yeah, and that was always one of my favorite things to ask people was, uh, hey, do you know who Steven Ireland is? Because, you know, lo and behold, <laughs> um, you know, if they couldn't answer that question, I mean, you're not a City fan, my friend. Yeah, it's it's certainly interesting. And I think it goes back to that um, kind of American exceptionalism ideal, right? Like, they were on a rise at a time in the United States that football was growing in popularity. So they were a team people wanted to play with on FIFA because they had some really good players and, you know, they were winning games and they were starting to win the league and, you know, they were attracting top talent, top coaches, and there was a buzz about them, right? So almost, if by design, you will, you know, the the interests of Americans towards football coincided with the rise of City in the English Premier League. So it's it's no doubt to me that, you know, if you're looking to a team if you're looking to, you know, watch a team or flip a flip something on, you're going to go with the team that's winning or the team that's scoring a lot of goals. So, you know, a lot of people's, I think, first interaction with at least a, a kind of more longer term sense of viewership with with the game is with a Manchester City and B Tottenham, because Tottenham as well was, you know, really having a resurgence there and they had a lot of popular players. And, you know, we can even, you know, attribute like Clint Dempsey to the popularity of Tottenham in the in the in the United States. But there was a period of time from we'll say twenty ten to 
you know, 2015, 2016, where it really did seem like the two camps that people were gravitating towards were Manchester City and Tottenham. And, you know, credit to them. I think their their football structure is going to be the way of the future. I mean, it's them and uh, the Red Bull teams that have this kind of idea of almost a worldwide dominance of club farm systems that, you know, are really working for them. And it's a great model. I think animosity aside, it's good for growing growing the game and developing nations as well um, and getting the brand out there. As far as it relates to NYCFC, you know, I think MLS is still growing in popularity. Even myself, I'm not overly familiar with MLS. I think this upcoming year is a year that I'm electing to opt into following the MLS um, with an actual, like, observational eye versus, oh, like, playoffs are here. Let's see what's going (laughs) on. But, you know, New York City FC is good now. I mean, they made it to, I think, what was it, the semifinals this year or whatever. They made a deep run in the playoffs. Um, they have had the benefit of some absolute stars come through the the DP program. Um, you know, the likes of Frank Lampard and whatnot. Um, but what excites me more about football in New York City is the uh, our, our Red Bull boys across, uh, across in Jersey. I mean, from an American standpoint, they are developing some top-class talent from homegrown talent. Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson, those guys are the the way of the future. And I'm you'll hear here first. I'm I'm putting my flag on the the Red Bulls as my uh my city team of choice right now. But um I think it's an exciting time and the MLS is growing in popularity, so it should be fun to watch. And now United on the counter attack themselves. Kagua. Here's Rooney. Looking for oh, Van Persie. That's a hell of a ball, though. He's going to find Van Persie. On the volley! Oh! Robin Van Persie might just have scored the goal of the season. He came here to win trophies, has a league title for starters. We will never forget that strike. United 2, Villa 0. Okay, goal number three for Rob. And it is our third and final Manchester United uh, entry on this list. And this one still involves Wayne Rooney, but is scored by someone else. This is April 2013, and we're at Old Trafford as Manchester United host Aston Villa, looking to win the Premier League title for the... Well, excuse me. Looking to win the Premier League title and the English League title for the 20th time, which would extend their own record. And this game is about one man, as this season was, to be completely honest, and that is Robin van Persie. The Dutchman joined United from Arsenal, where he had had a very successful spell, but had famously not managed to win the Premier League. In the summer of 2012, he joined United and helped Sir Alex Ferguson win his final Premier League title. In this game, van Persie sealed it before halftime. It was a hat-trick from van Persie, who scored three times, one very early on, a fairly simple goal, knocked across to the back post from Ryan Giggs and Van Persie tapped it in to give United the lead. The third, a couple minutes before half time, was fairly similar, just a bit of a scramble in the box and Van Persie managed to smash it into the roof of the net. But the second goal, the one that made it 2-0 and pretty much sealed the game on the night, is the one that this game is most remembered for. 
Wayne Rooney, our aforementioned genius, picks the ball up just inside his own half, maybe about level with the edge of the center circle that United are defending. And he plays a 50-yard diagonal ball over the Aston Villa back line and right onto Robin Van Persie's left foot, who without blinking hits a volley past American Brad Guzan and into the net. Cue pandemonium at Old Trafford, an absolutely incredible goal. And United were on their way to the title. Rob, we'll obviously talk about both the goal scorer and the assist maker in this goal. But take me back to to your recollections of this in 2013. I remember that I was prepping to move to America just a few months after this and could not really believe that this would be the last time we'd have won the league between then and now. But an incredible goal. Why, why did this one have to be on your Des Island goals list? So my my dad is a huge Aston Villa fan. This was one where I was chirping him all game because if we go back to some of you know United's best goals, they just happen to have you know be against Aston Villa. I mean, we think of Paul Scholes hitting yeah. just absolute yep. bangers against them, but time and time again, you know, I've got a soft spot for Villa in my heart. But this was just an absolute dagger of a goal. Um, so yeah, just chirping him all game. You know, the game's not going his way, and then bang, he hits this, and I mean, even he just stands up and is just clapping in his uh in his seat. But yeah, I mean, the the United games versus Villa always have a lot to me. Unfortunately, we have now just lost the the most recent one, but we have some redemption this week uh, coming up. But uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of highlights for for United on the United versus Villa front. Um. But yeah, I mean this this was just this was the the just theme of the season as you alluded to, right? I you know, get the ball to Robin Van Persie and he'll deliver you the twentieth title. You know, I remember reading stuff about players in the locker room saying like Sir Alex literally just said, just get the ball to Van Persie. And that's pretty much what just happened in this goal. It's it's Route One football, which is always fun to watch, um, especially during this time where you know the the influences of Spanish Spanish football were starting to reach the league where it really wasn't long balls and uh, you know battling about for it, but you know finesse tactics and you know pattern play. But there's there's something about just you know long ball, bang goal. Let alone it's it's superhuman the fact that he could take this out of the air over his shoulder from fifty yards away and just absolutely bury it in the corner. I mean. I will stand by Robin Van Persie as a top three bagsman in the Premier League history. I think it's pretty undoubted. You know, what he did with Arsenal was great. What he did with United was better because he got a trophy out of it. Um, but yeah, he delivered. I think he had 26 goals on that season. And that was, you know, probably the most special, special of that occasion. It's funny. Sometimes you can boil down a Premier League title winning to a moment or a player who does something exceptional or many things exceptional. You know, I think of Man City winning the title a few years ago and that Vincent Company goal, you know, that he smashes in from the edge of the area that, that restricted Liverpool and helped City beat Leicester. That almost became the Vincent Company title. I think of Federico Makeda in 2009. That title almost became the Federico Makeda title. And this one in 2013 is undoubtedly the Robin Van Persie title. I mean, he was unbelievable. I, I think back the the last-minute free-kick winner against Man City, that one always stands out to me as a, as a goal that I love, the deflected free-kick that flies into the back post that the Etty had. And, you know, he was he was truly exceptional. I 
What's most funny is that it's one of the biggest U-turns that I've ever had to uh, do on a player because I hated him at Arsenal. I absolutely <laughs> hated him. Um, obviously, growing up in North London, surrounded by Arsenal fans, all they wanted to talk about was Van Persie. And then uh, as soon as he signed for us, I was wearing the jersey. He was scoring against Arsenal and everything was good for me as far as I was concerned. There was no surprise whatsoever that he managed to score home and away against Arsenal in this season. What do you remember about the impact that he had? I mean, you touched on, you know, Ferguson saying get the ball to him. But as a fan, I, I felt like it was a huge deal when we signed him in trying to keep up and, you know, re-overthrow Manchester City, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, at the time, United were crying out for just, you know, a bagsman. Like, we, you alluded to it before, like, Rudy was unhappy two years ago with just having Chicharito sign. I think we were having Welbeck play kind of in there. So, I mean... We just, we didn't have, and similar to today, I mean, we'll ignore Ronaldo talk for now, but like, we just don't, the team did not have a guy who was going to go out and get you 20 plus goals per season. Sir Alex Ferguson, one way or another, somehow made that signing happen. That's a signing where it makes zero sense to me as far as who, who gave the green lights for that, let alone 24 million for, for a title. I mean, maybe that's the price of a title there, but, um, (laughs) Even at twenty nine, like he he had a he had way too he had so much to contribute, and I think it would it just happened to be the perfect marriage of he had such a a thirst and desire for trophies. He was the missing puzzle to a solid United team that was beginning to maybe seek the decline. Like they were kind of at the the apex of the roller coaster there, but you know, we, the timing of the transfer couldn't have been better because we had a platform of a team that was playing well, you know, a coach who was on what his you know, last dance effectively and a player who could come in and have an instantaneous impact. Credit to Rooney in this too. I mean, I know I'm like sitting here standing on Wayne Rooney, but this is, this is again, a culmination of the way in which his game has changed over the years, you know, he went from being that guy or, you know, part of, you know, Tevez, Ronaldo, Rooney trio to learning how to play support character to a guy who was going to go out and win you a league. Um, and I mean, that was a, that was a deadly strike partnership, even though Wayne was playing more of a, you know, a 10 role, I guess you could say in that, that era, but that's, that's two guys where you put them on the field in their prime, which they pretty much were in their prime at that time. And, you know, defenses are terrified you know you're gonna the the game's mentally already lost to a degree i mean this is not like the eric Cantona era of stuff but you know as a center back myself like if i'm coming up against that and i know i have to play against that i'm doubting my own capabilities or overthinking stuff and you know just expecting a moment of magic to happen and you know when you're winning that mental battle i mean he he's a player who gives you that edge in a game both from a sheer quality and output perspective, but also as a bit of a mentality monster too. Um, and I think United need a little bit of a refresh um, in the mentality department, um, not just relying on Wayne and Sir Alex Ferguson for that too. Yeah, totally agree with you. I mean, Rooney was dragging teams forward at times. You know, there were there were games which he would almost win on his own. And again, this season, the he and Van Persie partnership, like you alluded to, was was fantastic, even if... You know, Rooney was doing more of the creating and, and Van Persie more of the scoring. I I just want to touch on the actual, you know, the assist for this goal itself. Um, because I do think, you know, we've spoken about Rooney at length. But it, the, the moment of genius to look up and think, yeah, I can play that ball 
but then also the ability to deliver it. Is it fair to say that Wayne Rooney's underrated? I, I've kind of always felt like even even at the highest of his powers, he was he was you know I think when he was very young he was kind of considered that there was a Rooney Ronaldo debate, and obviously Ronaldo has gone on to accomplish more. And I don't I don't think anyone's going to sit here and tell you that you know Wayne Rooney was was at the same level as Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi. But I often felt that Rooney should have been talked about in slightly more glowing terms than he was at times. And I feel that maybe it was his controversial nature off the field, shall we say, some of the things he did or was accused of doing, and maybe just how abrasive a personality he was, that he wasn't necessarily universally lauded as he should have been. And I I wonder if it'll take a few more years still before we really look back and really think that he was truly one of the the all-time greats. You could you could chalk this up to being either a benefit or detrimental to that you know perceived legacy, if you will. But he, outside of maybe that first season, yes, he was a known entity. Everybody you know loved him and knew his talent. But to a degree, the spotlight was always on somebody else, or at least the spotlight was shining brighter on somebody else. So Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously, as soon as he got brought in, it took him you know a season or two to get going. But you know, after that, I mean. Yes, he was playing in an a attacking line with two extremely talented other players, but Ronaldo was always going to get the headlines there, right? Ronaldo leaves, United sees a dip, and to your point, Rudy's working his ass off dragging the team forward through a period of, you know, time where we shouldn't have it. We shouldn't have had as much success or been hanging around as long as we did there. So when he's kind of the star man with the, the spotlight on him in that case, you know, Team's not having as much success. Bring Robin Van Persie in. Again, spotlight's kind of on RVP, who's, you know, bagging 25-plus goals that season, scoring absolute worldies, and being assisted by Rooney, right? So I think, you know, he, he's he been a main man, but he's also been kind of the, you know, award for, for best supporting cast to a degree. Um, and he makes players better around him. And I think that's one of the best legacies that he can have. But yeah, underrated is certainly not the word I would use, but not oh it maybe not the center of attention or, you know, especially positive attention with the way British media just beats up their own players. But you know, it either you, you could see it as that helped him in his career because he, you know, longevity and you know kind of avoided a Paul Gascoigne situation or you know was a detriment to his legacy but yeah I think it's it's really just the fact that there were so many there was always another main man in the picture um that he was competing with for the attention and he he seemed to lose out on the attention aspect a little bit Here they come again, the long-range effort from Lloyd! Oh, my goodness! It's a hat-trick! With one of the most incredible goals you're ever likely to see. Okay, goal number four for Rob. And this is an international goal for the first time on our list. And it's a huge one in a huge game. This is July of 2015. And this is the Women's World Cup final between, surprise, surprise, the United States of America and Japan. 
Now, there's a little bit of an interesting backstory to this, which I believe is correct in saying four years previous, Japan had beaten the US on penalties following a 2-2 draw, which at the time was a relatively big upset uh, in, in the Women's World Cup. Japan are a team with a lot of talent and often in the latter stages of the tournament. But the US, as we spoke about at the start, very much a juggernaut, used to winning the World Cup. And in 2011, it did not go their way. So in 2015, looking for a little bit of redemption, a little bit of revenge, the U.S. women's national team absolutely blew Japan away. This is, I think, the only game I can really compare this to in terms of at the top level being over before it's begun is the Germany-Brazil semifinal from 2014, the 7-1. Now, this is not as bad as that, but... There's an argument maybe it's also worse because this is the final and that was just the semi-final, right? So in this game, the US are 4-0 up after 16 minutes. Yes, 4-0, 16 minutes. And in that time, Carly Lloyd had scored in the third minute and the fifth minute before Lauren Holiday had added the third after just 14 minutes. And Japan are already reeling. It feels as though the game is already over. But when in the 16th minute, Carly Lloyd says, hmm, I want to complete my hat trick, wins the ball in the center circle, knocks it forward. And from basically the exact spot of the halfway line, Carly Lloyd unleashes a chip that flies and flies over the Japanese goalkeeper, Kai Hori, and into the net. Carly Lloyd completes a hat trick inside 16 minutes in a World Cup final. Simply incredible. And this goal is Beckham-esque. Um, and anyone else who scored from the half, I remember Xabi Alonso doing it once. But Carly Lloyd doing it against Japan in the World Cup final, simply incredible. What a performance from her. And the US go on to win the World Cup 5-2 in this final against Japan. Rob, take me back to 2015. And obviously, this is kind of a chance to further dive into the phenomenon that is the U.S. women's national team. So take me back to 2015. Where where were you and what are your recollections of, of this one and how it made your list? Yeah, I think uh, this is summer 2015. So just graduated from Trinity. So um, I think I had gone home for a period of time. So I want to say that. I don't remember specifically where I was, but <laughs> I do remember being absolutely fired up for this match because as you know, you said, Four years ago, Japan beats us in a little bit of a shocker on penalty kicks. So, you know, I think um, any any anybody who's a fan of the U.S. women's national team would say that they, they were going in with a we were going in with a little bit of a grudge and a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. Which is, you know, credit to Japan. It, it, it's hard to be mad and angry at Japan a lot of the time because you know just they they just conduct themselves in such a, a good way. But Carly Carly nets for the fastest hat trick in women's world cup history her first goal is the fastest goal in a you know world cup history women's world cup history final like this this entire this entire game is just iconic from from start to finish and unfortunately japan's on kind of the bad side of this but yeah it's just it's it's this team was interesting to me because i think having come off of the 20 uh was it 2011 whatever the prior world cup loss the team was a little bit in flux and lacking a little bit of identity, especially after having lost, you know, perennial players like Abby Wambach and Hope Solo and whatnot. Um, so the the team was very 
in transition or shifting and searching for a new identity. And this was a team that almost, I would say, is one of the more unique women's national team kind of uh, World Cup squads that I can remember in recent history because they're, the squad was almost enigmatic. Um, Carly Lloyd, to me, was never an out-and-out goal scorer, and she went on to win Golden Boot of that entire tournament. Um, I always thought of her as, you know, kind of attacking attack-minded, but, you know, going to get assists, going to get a goal, going to get issues. And she turns around and puts a World Cup performance in that is absolutely, absolutely wild to me. Like, and when I think of, like, all-time great nines or, you know, goal scorers for the U.S. Women's National Team, Carly Lloyd is not in that conversation for me initially, but she's she's cemented her place as one of the best uh, performers in the U.S. Women's National Team after this entire run. You know, in in a team that needed powerful leadership she she stepped up and she delivered and especially to, to deliver three goals in 16 minutes is nuts but to you know cap it off with that that glorious dink from the halfway line I just I remember you know clapping at that just wow like what an absolute complete performance for 16 minutes into that um and then immediately I was like oh I feel bad for Japan like this is not good but um pretty much in, with with that uh you know it's just Game seems sealed. You know, we could kind of start not taking the foot off the gas because, I mean, the the women have never had a, a propensity for taking their foot off the gas <laughs> after putting 10-plus goals past teams, uh, you know, time and time again. But, yeah, I mean, that team was that team was phenomenal. Carly Lloyd had a phenomenal, phenomenal tournament. And it, it's just that goal is kind of the capstone for me and maybe one of those, like, capstone of her careers when you're going to look, you know, back on it and just say, cherry on top. What a goal, what a performance, complete performance, complete player, absolute stalwart for the U.S. Women's National Team. Yeah, I mean, I I remember watching this final live and kind of being in awe at the fact that a hat-trick had been scored so early and that this game that was supposed to be a competitive match was over before it began. And that's why I compare it to, you know, Germany against Brazil, because I, I really can't think of a game with so much on the line where a team has just been blown away so quickly without really any fault of their own. Like, I don't, I don't know that there's really anything that Japan did wrong on the four goals. I think they were all just excellent play by the US, you know, the four goals in the first 16 minutes. Obviously, you could maybe put a question mark on the goalkeeping on this one um, because Carly scores from so far out. But do you anticipate Carly? A, even daring to try this and B, actually being able to pull it off with the accuracy... That she does. So I can have some sympathy with the goalkeeper in thinking, you know, you've just been caught out. But the the US team here just a- absolutely fantastic and, and, and blew Japan away. Is there something about, you know, a goal from this kind of distance? Is that something that you, you enjoy more than others? I mean, we've seen already on your list, we've had two two incredibly impactful volleys. Uh, you know, the the Rooney volley against Newcastle you know I guess technically the overhead kick is also a volley and the uh and and the volley from Van Persie but this is a very different kind of goal um were you looking for some sort of long distance shot are those goals that you typically enjoy or is it just the fact that it's in a world cup final and it completes a hat-trick after 15 minutes that that helps Carly Lloyd find her way onto your list yeah, I mean, I mean, bangers from distance are always fun to watch. I, I, you know, it's like you know watching Steph shoot threes or something like that. You know, it's just they're they're special. Um, but I mean, just uh, I, th- this goal was one of the ones that immediately came into mind, just because yes, it was from distance, but 
you know, it capped off a hat trick. It was a Pushkas award nominee. Um, it just, it, it, it embodied a lot of, I think at the end of the day, what that team was capable of doing and what that team pulled off. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the, the goals that came to mind were, you know, distance. I even thought about, you know, that, that goal, like Cavani must've, you know, watched uh, Carly Lloyd in that final when he picked up the ball uh, a season ago and, you know, tried that, tried that audacious chip again too. Cause I mean, it's almost the same, same goal, but Something about them is special, and especially when you're rising to the occasion to, you know, have the faith in yourself or, you know, have the audacity in the moment to just, you know, have, you know, hit it, you know, just it's certainly I mean, I'm sure we as players aren't we know that we're not sitting around thinking like, oh, this is a great time that I should try this chip right now. You, you're, you know, you're just running off instinct. You're like, it's a heads up play in this case. And it's it's football IQ and it's it's awareness on the pitch so yes credit to the fact that yeah it's from distance but there's a whole lot of other factors that go into it too you know from retrieving the ball having the alertness having the vision to see it and having the touch to be able to do it because that's that wasn't like a just absolute screamer that was that was a finesse touch from 50 yards out and if you know, people who are listening have never tried to, you know, hit a 50-yard ball. They're hard enough, <laughs> let alone loft it, uh, loft it onto a pillowcase in the back of the net. I think audacity is the, uh, is the right word there. It's the audacity from Lloyd to, to see this as an opportunity and then the precision to, uh, to execute it that, that really is remarkable. And I guess, you know, we, we're going to talk about the Qatar World Cup here in just a couple of minutes with, the, with your fifth goal. But obviously leading into uh, next year and the Women's World Cup, I am proudly able to sit here and tell you that my national team are the current defending champions of Europe, which is a, a unbelievable thing that I'm able to say. And uh, the whole Euros tournament was was amazing. But one thing I want to touch on is obviously just a few months ago, we had an England against USA friendly at Wembley. There was a 90,000 sellout almost instantaneously. And possibly the top two teams in world football right now on the women's side, England and the US playing, you know, what was a competitive game? How, how do you feel about the, uh, the women's world cup next year? Is, is this just, is there a sense of, you know, anything other than winning it would be a disappointment for, for us women's national team fans, or is there still an acknowledgement that it is hard to do? Because when you've had the level of success that the U S has had on the women's game, Winning doesn't just become a habit. It also becomes an expectation. And I think back to kind of the U.S. Olympic men's basketball teams in this instance. You know, I watched the Redeem Team documentary a couple of weeks ago. And when winning becomes the expectation rather than the desire and the habit, that can sometimes be problematic. So how, how does this women's team continue to motivate themselves and uh, fight off challenges like Japan, like potentially Germany or Spain, or even England from from the European side of things. It's incredibly exciting, and I think everybody should be tuning in because I think this is going to be just as exciting as the men's World Cup. Women's women's football, especially in Europe, with the development of you know the big European leagues, forming teams, putting money into their teams, building narratives around their teams. You know, the women's Premier League is you know a hot destination now. We have. The, the women in France, you know, Lyon is an incredibly, incredibly top team. Barcelona has the world's best players right now. And it's it's so much more competitive. And from, from an American fan perspective, what's going to be interesting to see is how do we respond to this new challenge? 
you know, winning has been the standard, but, and not to knock these other, these other teams who have paved the way for what we're seeing now, but we, we have not seen this level of competition in, in women's world cup history to date. And it's really exciting to see. And, you know, I think the lionesses are incredible, well-coached, a lot of great players, players all over the world too. You have players now who are able to play effectively year-round between going to the NWSL and then playing off-seasons abroad on loan. And yeah, I mean, what's great is fans are buying into it. it, it you know, you, you you said it yourself, like sell it at Wembley. Um, Barcelona has been packing out New Camp, you know, pretty much for a lot of the games, setting attendance records and whatnot, like... These are not things to be overlooking, and these are not just gestures of oh, like let's go through the motions and do it. Like this fandom is real, and it's only going to continue to solidify. And I can, it's on the trajectory where like we're we're going to have almost like a convergence of you know fandom or appreciation between the men's and the women's game that I'm confident in the next ten twenty years. <laughs> Chicharito being harassed. Bradley's going to escape from Herrera. Bradley trying to chip on Joa, and he scores! Michael Bradley! I'd said in the first two minutes, Michael Bradley was stepping up, closing down these Mexican midfielders in possession, and then the awareness to see Ochoa off his line. He has a look up right here, and he's thinking in this moment, can I pull this off? And that is a world-class effort from Michael Bradley. The distance, the execution, the timing, and in that moment for the United States to put them up 1-0 at Azteca, Captain America. All right, goal number five for Rob. Rob's fifth and final selection. And we are sticking with the U.S. national team, but this time we are pivoting to the men's national team. And I think it's fair to say probably the biggest rivalry possible for the U.S. men's national team is against Mexico. And it's not one that we've necessarily been able to talk about here on the podcast before. So I'm excited to get a chance to kind of hear the overarching feelings from a U.S. fan about about this game and uh, and what it means to Americans in general and American soccer fans. So this is in June of 2017. This is a 2018 World Cup qualifier. But at the time, this was a very good result for the U.S. As at Estadio Azteca in Mexico, the U.S. get a 1-1 draw. Thanks in large part to a piece of individual brilliance after just six minutes from captain Michael Bradley. Obviously, this rivalry is intense and uh, politically charged, perhaps unfortunately. But the games between these two are often highly entertaining and highly intense, I would say. This game itself meant a lot for qualifying for 2018, as we've already said. And in just the sixth minute, this piece of brilliance from Michael Bradley really deserves, you know, a, a fine assessment as he nicks the ball in the center of midfield and with his first touch sets himself up perfectly to try what is frankly an outrageous chip. And again, you know, we've just spoken about Carly Lloyd scoring from, from halfway. This is about 15 yards closer in, but not by a whole lot. And Michael Bradley dinks it from 40 yards, clean over Mimo Ochoa in the Mexico goal. And what I love about this the most is his celebration. 
is fantastic. And I think so often celebrations can really add to goals. If he just kind of turned around and stood still, he might have made it look cool, but probably not as much as his excitement as he sprints to the end behind the goal where the US fans are going absolutely crazy, as you can see on the TV coverage. And looks like a pretty healthy away end, I will say. And that's something I will give US men's soccer and women's soccer fans for is they travel well. They really do travel well. And they do support their team around the world, wherever they go. This chip from Michael Bradley is fantastic. And it eventually earns the US a point following Carlos Vela's equalizer that perhaps we'll talk about in a couple of minutes here. But Rob, talk, talk me through, firstly, your feelings about Michael Bradley as a player and then this goal itself. Because I know that at times towards the end of his international career, he was a somewhat divisive figure. But I've always thought of him as a, a very solid and talented U.S. national team midfielder. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally love Michael Bradley. I have a Michael Bradley jersey sitting in my, my closet. Um, you're, it, it's always going to be, you're going you're gonna to divide opinion when you're the son of the national team coach. There's always going to be questions of, is he in the team just because of that? Is he actually talented enough? But, you know, frankly speaking, yeah, he was talented enough. And, you know, he... he Maybe he didn't really make the cutover when he was playing abroad per se, but he's been a stalwart in the MLS during a time of great transition. He was he's been part of the US men's national team that has really, really been dynamic over the last better part of a decade. And he anchored a lot of those teams that were going through a lot of change. You know, he survived multiple coaches. He's a guy who, yes, he's maybe not never going to be a world beater per se, but he's a dependable, reliable guy, you know, and you need those guys in your team who are going to quietly go about their business. He was always a quiet leader too, which is not, you know, my leadership style per se, but you know, if you can cajole the guys who have that fiery energy around you, then that, that speaks volumes enough. And I think he was that guy for a while who, you know, while, you know, people might have been trying to make a name for herself or trying too hard a lot of the time to try to get into the team or try to almost force football in America, you know, he was going about his business. And I, you know, respected the simplicity of his game. You could never knock him for his work ethic. Yeah. And he never really played outside of what he was capable of. And I have a lot of respect for him for that. You know, it's it's nice when he he can get rewarded with moments like this, which are almost the antithesis of, you know, the player that he was or you could pick up the ball and silence a, a PAX crowd at Azteca. Um, and to your point, have just an iconic celebration of just riling up the Mexican fans and, you know, really just setting a fuse off the, the United or the United States away end. Yeah. And he very much does rile the fans up, which I, I have to say, I enjoy, you know, if I, if I'd ever played at a level where there were really, you know, opposition fans to rile up, I, I certainly would have done it given the opportunity for sure. Um, because there's something about, you know, that's why we're here. You support your team and you you celebrate when you score and you've got to take it when you concede. That's 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 the life of a uh, a footballer and a football fan. O- obviously, the, the goal itself is fantastic skill. And there are some similarities here between this and, and the Carly Lloyd goal. Um, but what is it about this goal in terms of the, the rivalry with um, Mexico that, that, that really allows you to put it on the list because obviously like I said this does end in a 1-1 draw so is there is there any part of the goal that is dulled by the fact that the U.S. don't win the game or is it really just this kind of display of skill at Mexico in a place that's hard to go and hard to win is is that what really made sure it had to be on your list yeah it's it's the context right like the the men's national team 
has a poor, poor record as Azteca, as do a lot of teams do, because that place is borderline impossible to play in. And if you hear fan stories from going and visiting Azteca, it's 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 not a nice place. Um, I mean, would love to be able to go as a as a neutral fan watching, like uh, you know, when the World Cup comes to North America. I think that might be my only chance to be able to go peacefully watch the game at Azteca, but. Um, just a game where we go in and you're thinking one point is the best result possible, which we ended up do getting one point, but it's a game where we tend to come out slow at Azteca. I mean, the U S had a bad habit for that stretch of going one nil down across all competitions, pretty much against all opponents. So for them to, you know, pick up a, they're going to absolutely stunning goal in the you know, sixth minute of this game against your biggest rivals at, you know, the Azteca in front of 85,000 fans and just almost hearing silence after that. It's, it's just, it's, it's one of the reasons why we love, we love the game. There's an unpredictable nature about it at times. Um, and it's not anything I would have ever expected. Just given the, given the position we were at, um, especially trying to qualify and surprisingly, you know, we can look at that as one point earned or two points dropped. But, you know, it's the other games in that series of uh, qualification that is where we really lost out on qualification. Um, but no, I think it's just you go to Azteca, you score a goal like that early. That gives you the hope to fight. That picks up your team a little bit to get into the fight and stay chippy with them and try to stick around and, you know, not even per se defend that lead, but, you know, fight for the rivalry itself. Even without that goal and the manner of which it was scored, like that could have been an absolutely disastrous result for the United States. So I, I, I promised Rob before we before we came on here, when we first started talking about this, that we would definitely do some uh, U.S. men's national team World Cup talk. And something that I want to talk about really is, is, is the team that you have now compared to the team of this goal in 2017. Because obviously, as we alluded to at the start, the debacle in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, ended up being the death knell for the U.S. trying to be at the 2018 World Cup. And it did feel weird not having the U.S. in that 2018 World Cup as England uh, went on a run for the ages and uh, gave us all a little bit of hope that we might be able to win the World Cup. But in looking at the lineup from that day, Christian Pulisic is probably likely to be the only survivor um, in, the, in the U.S. national team uh, this World Cup. You also have Bobby Wood, Paul Ariola, Demarcus Beasley, Michael Bradley, Kellen Acosta, DeAndre Yedlin, Gonzalez, Cameron, and Reem at the back with Guzan in goal in this game against Mexico. And now, as far as the squad for this World Cup, you're, you know, obviously it's not confirmed yet, but you're looking at pretty much probably Zach Steffen in goal, or, and his backup is Matt Turner. So two goalkeepers who are playing at the highest level in England. And then you've got players like Serginio Dest at AC Milan, Anthony Robinson at Fulham, James Sands at Rangers. Uh, you know, Yedlin maybe will still get in there. Walker Zimmerman, obviously. George Bello playing at Armenia Bielefeld in Germany. You head to the midfielders. Kellen Acosta still potentially still around. Uh, Tyler Adams at Leeds. Weston McKenney at Juventus. Eunice Musa at Valencia. Gio Reyna, Borussia Dortmund. Brendan Aronson at Leeds. Jesus Ferreira from FC Dallas. Ricardo Pepe, who was at... FC Dallas now playing in the Netherlands. Jordan Peffock for Union Berlin in Germany. Tim Weyer at Lille in France. There's a very European and international feel to this US team. And to me, it does feel like maybe the 
number of US players playing at a high level of club football. This is probably the highest it's ever been from my recollection. Even that team in 2014 that was a great team, I don't remember there being necessarily as many players who were playing at the highest level week in, week out as there are now. That said, this team is obviously a lot younger. You know, you had experienced players like Clint Dempsey, like Landon Donovan, like Jermaine Jones, who maybe had a little bit more, I guess, awareness of the the stage and a little bit more street smartness. So how do you feel, Rob? How, how do you feel heading into Qatar? Um, obviously, the the ins and outs of the World Cup being held in Qatar is a conversation that would probably take two hours um, for us to go through. And I think most people at home can probably guess how we feel about that whole thing. We're purely looking at this from the footballing perspective in this conversation. Rob, how do you feel about the US's chances? And with the players I just listed, do you, do you feel good about this team and where it is right now? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly exciting team. And it's a team that, you know, I hope that, you know, the nation gets behind. Um, we are youthful, but we're full of energy and a little bit of that kind of swag that, like, we talked about young Wade Rooney with, especially, you know, when we look at guys like Brennan Aronson, Brennan Aronson, Tyler Adams, like, these are scrappy dudes who also have talent, which is great to see. These guys are young, they're hungry, and they have bite. But what's different, too, is they have talent a lot better than a lot of other national teams are producing right now. I mean... A midfield trio of West McKinney, Tyler Adams, and Eunice Munsa is honestly like pretty incredible, even at their age as it is right now. And these are guys playing at, you know, top top level teams at top leagues in Europe and starting contributing. They're not just on the roster, they're not just like fringe guys, like they're in it week in and week out. And it's it's apparent that this is the progression of U.S. soccer when you have your best players playing at the best teams and playing at the best leagues. I have high hopes for us. Uh, I would love to see a deep run, but honestly, my goal for the boys is to just get out of the group this year. Um, England's obviously a powerhouse, you know, injuries aside and Southgate question or credential questionability aside, like, you know, they are one of the favorites to win the World Cup. We can't sleep on whales whatsoever Gareth Bale has a knack for coming up in the clutch whenever he you know pretty much feels like playing um and you know they have a solid squad as well that's wanting to come out and compete so it's going to be a tight one to get out of the group and this is where the lack of experience and where having played in that last world cup would have helped some of our players like you have pool sick you have pool sick in the squad last world cup even just sitting on the bench that's massively helpful for this year, but you know we we lost we lost the World Cup uh, rotation, unfortunately. So these guys are going to be figuring it out on their own for the most part. You know, Yedlin maybe is one of the most gray headed guys on the team, is like what twenty eight or something like that. Like that's just that's that's absurd. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is going to be a learning World Cup for them. They're going to have to figure it out. They're going to have to learn what it's like to play at the highest level, at the biggest stage, in really just like a a do-or-die sort of atmosphere. This is not 30 games that they have over the course of an entire year to fix their mistakes. You know, they're going to need guys who are going to step up, guys who are going to, you know, maybe guys who you didn't think are going to be top contributors end up being, you know, the guy who becomes the backbone of a team or something. You know, I say I think Walker Zimmerman's the most influential player on the US men's national team going into this World Cup cycle and what he brings to the team. 
but yeah, I mean, I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Um, if they get out of the group, I'm going to be extremely happy and they can build on whatever experience they get for better or for worse from this world cup cycle. And, you know, hot take, but I think we'll be contenders in the next world cup, just given the, the age group that we have, the talent that we have and the pipeline of players that we're getting over the top level clubs in Europe. I, I totally agree with you. I think that the aim has to be to get out of the group. Wales are a team that are interesting because I don't think necessarily they have as much young talent as the US, but they are a little bit more experienced. They've been in a couple of tournaments in a row now and have had some success. Um, obviously, Gareth Bale is their talisman and leader. And I found it weird that he chose to move to the US and, and go play in MLS right before the World Cup because I felt like there would probably be someone who would just try and injure him, to be honest, just try and take a swing at him and try and take him out to help the US national team. And he looks as though he's made it through having scored in LAFC's final on the weekend. But I don't know that he's necessarily still the same caliber of player he once was, but he still absolutely has the ability to just do something incredible, you know, one moment of magic and, and win a game for them. It's really weird to say this, but I almost feel like the U.S.'s entire World Cup rests on the first game, which is Wales. If the U.S. win against Wales, you are very well set up because you know if you beat Iran, you will probably be through. And you can basically leave the England game, which is the second one. You can, you can, if you, if you get a point there, you're well set and you might win the group, but you don't have to get anything from England. I think that's what the U.S. needs to avoid. If you can get a draw with Wales, it basically comes down to a goal difference shootout against Iran, effectively, hypothetically. But for me, if you can beat Wales in that first game, oh, you're, you're really, really, really set up. Yeah, I, th- I agree with that. I think Wales is almost the crux of the entire group, too, because, yeah. you know, to a degree, like, talent, like on paper, talent-wise, I think the United States beats Wales, um, England for sure, but... How much of this, especially first game out of the block, is are we going to are we going to come out hot? Are we going to come out afraid? Are we going to shoot ourselves in the foot and do some dumb stuff? Same thing goes for England when they play Wales. Like, unfortunately, I as a as a neutral English fan, I don't know what team is going to show up on any day, and you you may or may not disagree with me, but you know it, it's it's hard to say. Like, you can be world beaters one day, and then you could have an absolutely lackluster performance, like you did against uh, Scotland in the Euros, where it's just like this is un uninspiring. And you know, the thing that England's facing that the U.S. doesn't is absolute amounts of pressure, especially with the expectations that you guys have. And again, like your England squad's pretty skews young on the the age radar too. I mean, these are guys who are playing at the highest level and you know starters in the Premier League and whatnot, but. You know, the 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 English fans have a, a special knack of piling on pressure. It seems like um, that you know even some of the the greatest generations of English football haven't been able to overcome. So you know, it's going to be interesting to see how you know Wales almost has a you know get out of jail free or however you are. they they don't have to be afraid of anything when they play, and that's that's dangerous, right? If they nick points off of everybody, that's a win for them. You know, if they qualify, if they go through the group, that's a huge win. But if not, like the expectation is not on them to actually make it out of the group per se. Yeah, I, I hear you completely. I think the pressure is on England. It's it's a weird one where we've had success in recent tournaments, but I just I really don't feel confident about England going into this tournament at all. I really I really don't feel like it's a it's a group of English players that's going to go deep this time. Southgate's done great things, and I've enjoyed him. And 
I think, you know, criticism of him as a manager is maybe a little bit unfair, but he continues to play some players who I just don't understand why they are starting. And he continues to ignore some players who I think do everything right week in, week out in the Premier League. And for some reason, they don't seem to get a chance. So I can't say I'm sat here feeling particularly positive about England. I still expect us to win the group. Without being disrespectful to the US, Wales or Iran, not winning the group would be an absolute failure, to be to be frank. And it can happen. Uh, it absolutely could happen. Not qualifying, Southgate wouldn't even get on the plane home, to be honest with you. Um, he would be fired before he before he got on the plane. I, I think Southgate has done enough to be allowed to choose when he wants to step down. I certainly am not campaigning for him to be fired whatsoever, regardless of the outcome of the World Cup. But it does feel like it might be about time for something fresh and something new. If you can't find a way to make Phil Foden an essential part of your first eleven, I, I just don't understand. I just don't understand, to be honest with you. I think he is an absolute supreme talent. And I think if he was Spanish, we'd be talking about him above Pedri, to be completely honest. Oh, so, 100%. Stockport Iniesta, baby. Exactly. So I, 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 just think, I just think there are players who have to be built around... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to go into the character assassination of Harry Maguire too much, but there are players who just are not really doing it form-wise right now that shouldn't be involved. And we, time will tell who who the squad exactly is. I, I don't. I'm assuming it's. I'm assuming it's announced at some point this week. By the time you hear this, we'll probably be into the World Cup already. So uh, whether or not I get my way and James Madison is included, we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see. But it, it, it's an interesting one and. I'm just glad that there's there's some intrigue in the group. I'd be completely honest. I wish England and the USA were not in the same group because I know that I'm going to get bombarded with messages from friends of mine, um, whatever happens. And if uh, if the USA win, I'll probably get abuse from my English friends saying, you did this, you were cheering for America, weren't you? So um, who knows really what's going to happen? It's It's a strange situation having a World Cup in November. I don't like it, to be completely honest, but... It, it's the hand we're dealt and we're, we're still going to watch the games, aren't we? <laughs> okay, we've made it through Rob's five goals, Rob's Des Island goals. We are to the end just by a very quick recap. We started with Wayne Rooney uh, for Manchester United against Newcastle, his fearsome volley. Then we had Rooney's overhead kick, Manchester United against Manchester City. Robin Van Persie's title ceiling volley for Manchester United against Aston Villa. Carly Lloyd's halfway line hat-trick goal for the US against Japan in the World Cup final of 2015. And Michael Bradley's dink over Mimo Ochoa for the US against Mexico in 2017. Rob, it's a great list. Lots of really nice memories, lots of really nice moments and great conversation. I've enjoyed talking through it all with you. Um, We always give our guests a chance to give any honorable mentions I know you listed one from our time together at Trinity that you wanted to uh, give a shout out to, but equally any any other honourable mention goals that you uh, you needed to honour here as we as we close this out. No, just uh, shout out to Zach Brock. I don't know if you're out there listening or not, but uh, it's a homie who uh, found his way into the starting eleven at Trinity University. Rightfully so, we'd been battling it out at the reserve squad, and I remember just the week before he was like pissing me off in training because he was like just just absolutely housing me and I like hacked him in the ankle or whatever but 
he gets in the he gets on the field like that next game or whatever and absolutely rips a thunder bastard i can't remember if it was on a half volley i think it was on a half volley incredible goal just pure joy on his face and the most epic celebration of all time a knee slide on dry texas turf uh which did not look like it was any fun whatsoever but you wouldn't have known through the grin on his face and i don't think he'd take it back for anything so shout out to that one outside of that uh Cal, Cal made me take two off the list for not being crusade goals. <laughs> so thanks for that. Uh, really, yeah, no, really whittled tell, my... Tell us, uh, tell us, sorry. I, 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 had a, I have a rule, which is that the goals have to be goals and the goals can't be uh, shootout penalties. They could be penalties in a real game, but it, a penalty shootout is technically outside the bounds of a game and therefore is not eligible for the uh, Desert Island goals anthology, shall we say. So one that we have mentioned previously, which was one that Rob wanted to put on there, was Brandy Chastain for the U.S. Women's National Team against China in 1999. So, yeah, talk me through why you wanted that one. Jacob Tingle also wanted that one, but uh, was was unable to get it on the list. But what what did that goal uh, signify for you? Most iconic moment in U.S. men's and women's soccer history so far. One of the most epic Sports Illustrated covers of all time. And I love that it was a center back with uh, the winning go-ahead penalty kick against uh, a rival of ours. So... Not to mention packed at Rose Bowl. That's just absolutely awesome to be able to say you you, you know you won you won the World Cup on home turf in front of you know ninety thousand plus. So cool stuff, absolute scenes. Well, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been fantastic as always. Great to chat with you, and uh, yeah, thank you for sharing your Desert Island goals with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I hope I don't end up on a desert island, but if I do, I will fondly remember this conversation as I, you know, whittle away at a tree somewhere. Yeah, it's one of the best things about doing this is we've got the uh, the time capsule of this conversation forevermore. And when uh, when the US go on to win the World Cup this November, we can look back at this and laugh as we said we didn't think there was a chance of it happening this year. Anyway, as always, oh, there's a chance, uh, guys. But, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll see we'll see we'll see guys thanks for checking this out um as always please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts be that apple spotify or anywhere else um we'll be back next week with another episode thanks for taking the time enjoy your weeks and we'll see you very soon cheers <laughs>